Okay, so we're in the back nine of a series from the book of Job. The series is titled Night, and you can open up your Bibles to Job chapter 38. And I mentioned to you when we started the series that I wanted to take the opportunity to recommend a different book each time that I was going to preach. And so this morning, I want to recommend a book by Oz Guinness called God in the Dark. Now, if you've read anything by Oz Guinness, you, you know that this is a writer, an author that has a, a formidable mind, but he has done a great job taking the, the subject of doubt and unpacking it in ways that is very accessible. Um, in addition to that, he distinguishes doubt from unbelief in a way that I think is, is very helpful. But apart from all that, just chapter 10 alone where he talks about Job, it's worth the entire price of the book. The subtitle is The Assurance of Faith Beyond a Shadow of a Doubt, uh, God in the Dark, Oz Guinness, and you can probably get that online uh, anywhere you want. So Job chapter 38. Today we're going to cover four and a half chapters, and uh, what I want to do is I want to approach these chapters by just dropping in certain sections of them, which will give you a sense of, of, uh, of what's being said in summary form by some of the things that are said within the chapters. So Job 38, the title of this morning's message is, is Night. So each, each week we're having the title of the series be the first word in the title. Night, the appearing. Night, the appearing. Job chapter 38, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 18. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, and who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst from the womb, when I make clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the deep, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to break open your word. And we pray now that you would help us to understand the meaning of this passage because we are, 
we are at a loss to be able to comprehend your word, to understand its meaning, and to move to apply it to our life unless you move on our behalf. And so now we express our dependence upon you and our confidence that this is a prayer that you desire to answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We don't know exactly what triggered that spectacular phenomenon that is described in chapter 38, verse 1. Was it Job's long-winded friends that had perhaps completed their speculation of his sin and gone on perhaps just a little too long? Or maybe it was that God decided that he would actually grant Job's appeal for a hearing. Or maybe, just maybe, God concluded that enough had been said and it was time for an adult to step in. We don't know. We don't know. But somewhere dur- during Elihu's monologue, the weather began to change. When I think about it, I imagine the clouds growing dark and the wind picking up and the air growing almost tropically hot and then everything beginning to shake. And that's when it happened. That's when a column of air began spinning rapidly into a funnel shape that appeared unexpectedly, appeared chillingly, appeared terrifyingly into what Scripture calls a whirlwind, which is another way to say God had arrived. Now, Job's visceral response is not really described here. However, I wonder whether the first thing in his mind wasn't the fact that he had lost his children to such a cloud, to such a funnel cloud, that he had lost them in a similar calamity, and perhaps he thought, it's now come for me. I get it, God. There's loss, grief, ruin, devastation, disease, humiliation, and now death. A fitting end to my tragic life. But little did Job know that this whirlwind in chapter 38, verse 1, was actually an answer to his prayer Because for the first time in this entire drama, Job got his request. He had desired to question God, and God arrived to answer. And I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like for God to appear, and his first words are, "Um, dress for action like a man. I actually have a few questions for you, Slick. I'm not sure, but I think the term blood run cold may have been invented for that moment. Because God had arrived, and he'd wanted neither information nor conversation. He wanted to set the record straight. Now, the best way to wade into this is to, I think, go back and review the two fundamental statements by Job about God through the entire book. These two fundamental statements by Job about God that clarify, then, what God is responding to in chapters 38 through 42. And I think we have to do so. We have to wade into this, remembering that to one degree or another, Job, as he's standing here, represents not simply himself, but he represents where we all tend to go when we suffer, where we all tend to go when we just don't know why. And we also have to remember that Job both questions God, 
But yet, as we're going to discover next week, he speaks rightly about God because God will say of him in this final chapter that Job has spoken rightly about me. So there may, apparently there are ways to do both. There are ways to question God and yet speak rightly of God. There are ways to question God and yet not sin. And in fact, I'm going at the end of this message to share a little bit of that with respect to my own odyssey. But Job's interaction, which as you recall, went all the way back to chapter 3, began and then continued and took shape in two primary issues, two assertions, charges, if you will, that he made towards God, two assertions. And I want to listen for you like this. Assertion number one was, I deserve an explanation. That's assertion number one. That comes out in a number of different ways, and we're going to look at that together. Assertion number two is, this is unjust. This is unjust. So assertion number one, I deserve an explanation. Now, this is a common gut-wrenching cry of the heart when anyone suffers and experiences what they perceive to be the silence of God. And Job illustrates that lament of I deserve an explanation in a number of different ways. And so just for a second, let's just go back, walk quickly through the entire book of Job and hear some of the places where he makes this kind of statement. Job chapter 7, verse 20, Job cries out, Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? In other words, I don't understand why things have changed. Everything was going so well. We were, we were connecting so well, God, and now I'm a burden to you, and I can't explain what you're doing here. I can't explain the message I'm supposed to be receiving. Job chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe he was even listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest, and he multiplies my wounds without cause. In other words, even if God did come, it would not be to help me, but it would probably be to judge me even further. In Job chapter 16, verse 12, you can hear his exasperation when he says, God has set me up like a target. Job chapter 23, verse 3, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. The implication there being, but he is not there. He is absent. He is not speaking. He is not near. He is not present. He is silent. Job chapter 26, verse 14, how small of a whisper do we hear from him? Again, he is not speaking in the very moment when I need to hear from him the most. He has abandoned me. And I think that whole section is summarized, or that whole idea is summarized rather plainly toward the end in chapter 30, verse 20, when he says, I cry to you for help. I cry to you for help. And you don't answer me. And that happens sometimes when suffering comes. We cry for help, and there is no answer. Yet Job is about to discover that the only thing worse in life than no explanation whatsoever is God arriving to provide an explanation. And that's exactly what happens because God appears. 
And in summary, what God says right out of the gate is, Job, since you think you deserve an explanation, let me just walk you through the standardized test for those in the deserving the explanation category. Those who qualify as if they deserve an explanation, these are the kind of questions they need to be able to answer. Let me begin with this one, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? On who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? And he just begins to walk Job through the corridors of creation and walks around and says, I was there. I was doing it. Didn't see you anywhere, Job. You were nowhere to be found. And he continues that for 38 verses. And then in chapter chapter 38, verse 39, he moves to the zoo. He says, Job, those who deserve explanations also test perfectly in zoology. And so in chapter 38, verse 39, he begins by saying, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey and when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder over the lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calfing of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. And he goes on and on. It's this, it's this collage of rapid-fire sketches of over 20 different creatures that God had created. It's almost like an artist. God is walking Job through this gallery of his favorite works, and he's stopping it at different animals. And he's saying, check out the donkey. Yeah, check out the ox. Check out the ostrich. Take special note of the peculiarity of each of these animals, of how they operate in ways that you are completely unaware of, Job. See, this whole exercise is all designed as a lesson for Job. It is a kind of tutorial that shows him that he, as a man, is surrounded by mystery. He is surrounded by things he does not know. Things outside of his reach, things he doesn't comprehend, things he doesn't even know take place that are going on each and every day, each and every moment of every day. And God is just walking him around creation, walking him around the zoo, walking him around all these different things that are going on, and Joe's completely unaware of it. And all of it to say, how do you then presume to demand an explanation from me? See, he's saying, Job, you don't understand. I couldn't couldn't give this to you just because you want it. You couldn't comprehend it. You could never understand how your suffering fits into the cosmic plan. It would blow your mind apart. Trying to explain to you how suffering, your suffering fits into the cosmic plan is like attempting to explain solar power to a poodle. You just won't get it. It just won't make sense. And as a result, Job is left with the same thing that we are left with. And that is that there are times when our suffering is inscrutable. There are times when our suffering just doesn't connect apparent dots. There are times where we just don't know 
why. Now let's just slow down for a second because we have arrived at one of the main points, one of the very reasons why this book was written. And that is that there are times where it pleases God for reasons that we may not ever discover in this life. There are times when it pleases God to withhold the why, to withhold the cause, to not explain to us exactly what his intention is in the things that we're suffering through, because he wants to do something that we can't completely understand or comprehend. And sometimes it's to do for us what he did for Job, which is to reestablish his supremacy in our life, because he withholds the answer from Job, but he certainly reveals himself. And so he's giving Job a lot more than simply an answer to his question. He's giving him himself. He's giving him an appearance. But it's not, a, it's not an answer to his Job's question. In fact, God never answers Job's questions. He reveals himself. And in so doing, God says, yeah, we're not going to get into cause, and you're not going to understand why, but I'm going to begin to unpack for you some of the purposes for which you suffer. So he doesn't know cause, but God just takes him down another, another road. It's like in John chapter 9. You remember the disciples saw a blind man, a man who's blind from birth. The disciples come upon him. They ask, they ask the, the Savior. They say, was it because this man sinned? Or was it because his parents sinned that he was born blind? And so the disciples are there, and they're operating out of this paradigm that they had, that most human beings have, which is that personal suffering is caused by personal sin. Or personal suffering is caused by the sin of one's parents. It's passed down to us, and that's why we are the way we are. And what Jesus does is he comes along and he just detonates their whole worldview, and he says, neither Neither. It was neither. It was, it was for a whole different reason. This was the purpose. It was that God's works might be displayed through him. That's why he was born blind, to glorify God. Jesus turns around and heals him. See, the disciples are asking about cause. Why? Why? What was the cause of this? Jesus says, no, you're asking the wrong question. Ask about God's purpose because God is going to be glorified through this. I know that why question taunts you. I know it mocks you. I know it mocks me. And how it can creep up on us in the worst times, in our most vulnerable states, sometimes in the middle of the night. And, and, it, and it poses itself in ways that can scamper in and we don't even recognize it. All of a sudden this thought presents itself. Am I being punished here? Is that what this suffering is all about? I don't know. I don't understand. Is that what this is? Why, why else would it be happening? Why do I receive no relief? Why do I, do I seem to be just moving from one season to the next of suffering? What have I done to deserve this? I deserve an explanation. And that's where we go. See, Job discovered something. Job discovered that when God comes... Life gets bigger than our suffering. When God comes, life gets bigger than our suffering. Because have you ever noticed that when you're in pain, your world tends to shrink to yourself? Your world tends to shrink to the size of your suffering. I, I don't know if you're that way. I know I'm that way. I mean, I may seem like a nice guy to you, but smite me with a cold 
or a flu or a toothache, and you will discover how self-obsessed I can become. Just like all the other men in this room, by the way. I mean, let's be honest. Our wives can be pregnant with morning sickness, and they can have a broken femur, but we will assume our burden is greater than theirs, right? We will assume we are, are, are suffering in a greater way than any woman alive. One of the absurdities of being a man is that we believe women sin more and suffer less than we do. Because a man's suffering is always greater. I know it doesn't show all the time, but men love their bodies. They do. I know it doesn't show, but, but men, I mean, w- women look in the mirror and they see everything needs to change. Everything in this mirror needs to change. Men look at, the body, at their bodies in the mirror and say, whoa, dude, you got it going on. And that 30 extra pounds is hanging off of you in an awesome way. <laughs> oh, what's my point? The point is that, that our suffering shrinks our mind. And it, and it shrinks down to just us. It shrinks down to just where we are in pain. And so what God does is because he loves us and because he cares for us and because he wants to meet us is he steps in to remind us of his purpose by revealing at times himself just like he did with Job. Let me give you a piece of pastoral counsel. Don't fall into the trap of believing that you could bear your suffering better if you knew why you were suffering. See, the question of why is an intellectual question. But suffering isn't an intellectual endeavor. It is a profoundly personal thing that affects us on many different levels. Heart, soul, mind, strength, everything gets affected. So throwing knowledge at suffering doesn't necessarily relieve suffering. However, we fall into the belief that somehow if we knew, we would be relieved in our suffering. But we find in Scripture people that do know why they're suffering, and it doesn't always seem to help them. So, for instance, the writer of Lamentations, whether you think it's Jeremiah or somebody else, the writer of Lamentations knew the cause of the suffering of the Hebrew people, that the Hebrew people had broken their covenant with God, and that's why they were suffering. But knowing that did not relieve their despair one bit. Knowing that the primary site of the tumor is here and not here doesn't necessarily answer the problem of pain. Knowing that your boss actually did have a vendetta against you, and that's why you lost your job, just as you always, always suspected. Oh, that may answer the question of why, but that doesn't necessarily relieve the, pl- the pain. It's like the four-year-old with a skinned knee asking why his boo-boo hurts so bad. You know, he's asking the why question, but if you start talking to him about how skin has seven layers, and actually when you tear off a couple of those layers, this is what's happening, this is why it bleeds, well, that means nothing to him. He just cries harder when he listens to you doing that because he's demanding an explanation for pain. But what he really needs is love and care and assurance and presence. See, in this section of Scripture, God is not explaining himself. He's exposing Job. He's not expounding all the reasons why he's done what he's done, all the reasons why Job has suffered. He is revealing himself. And as a result, something happens. 
Job begins to lift his eyes to God's world. God says, let me walk you around the world. Job begins to see it. He begins to see that there's something outside of his suffering. He begins to see that life is bigger than him, which is always the challenge for anybody suffering. Is life bigger than me? And Job begins to see it. One of the miraculous things about this story is that this man repents and, and moves forward without any of his circumstances ever changing. He repents before God. God didn't explain one thing to him. All he did was say, let me tell you all the things you don't know. Job repents. He's still suffering. He still has his disease. He's still alienated from his community. He still lost his wealth, lost his family. He lost everything, and yet he's repenting. Why? Because he saw God. Job says, I want answers. God says, I know you do, but you're going to get me. The answers will wait. And this is Job's response in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5. Behold, this is how Job responds. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. See, Job had this assertion, I deserve an explanation. And God very lovingly, very kindly, very personally disabused him of that so that he was seeing the world as bigger than his suffering. But there was a second assertion as well, and that was, this is unjust. This is unjust. See, Job started out strong. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, he loses his family, he loses his possession, he loses his servants, he loses all of his, his material and his business and everything, and he's saying, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But with the passing of every day and the words spoken over him by his friends, Job wore down, and this dangerous idea began to take shape in his soul, this idea that this is an injustice that's being inflicted upon me. This is wrong. This is unfair. This is unjust. We see it in chapter 13, verse 3. Job says, but I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. Job chapter 19, verse 7. I call for help, but there is no justice. Job chapter 23, verses 4 and 7. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be forever acquitted by my judge. And this idea is probably best summarized in chapter 9, verse 33, where Job laments, there is no arbiter between us. Meaning, there's no one to evaluate this injustice that God has inflicted upon me. There's no way to force God to answer for his actions. What shall I do? And it is in response to that particular idea, that particular assertion that God says to him in chapter 40, verses 7 through 9, he says, dress for action like a man. This is the second time he's coming to Job now. And I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Listen to this. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? 
And then from there, that's kind of a jumping off point where God then takes the next 48 verses to describe two different beasts, if you will. One of them is called the behemoth, and the other, the leviathan. And I think there are two different ways to look at these references to these two beasts. The behemoth is commonly understood to be the hippo, and the leviathan commonly understood to be the crocodile. However, included in these texts are certain things about these beasts that seems to move them from the natural world almost to the supernatural world, almost to the mythical world, which both of those beasts were also, also appeared in certain myths back then. So you'll look at chapter 41, beginning in verse 18. It describes the Leviathan. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like eyelids of the dawn, and out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. So it's almost like the smog-like character, if you're familiar with the Hobbit, the smog-like character, symbolizing these mythical beings that were both terrible and supernatural at the same time. But regardless of how one interprets this passage, the passage of one thing we can be certain, the passage is intended to do this. The passage is intended to assert the glory of God's power. God is basically saying, Job, you speak of fairness, you speak of equity, you speak of those things to the one who created all of these things, who created all beings, who directs the most powerful beings in the entire universe. Job, you speak of wanting your day in court to the very one who created both days and court. And God's position is probably aptly summarized in chapter 41, verse 11, when he says in this in this Chris summary, whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. That's me, Job. That's who you're talking to, Job. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now let's stop right there and let's run straight at a question that just jumps out from chapters 38 through 42. Is, is this some big power play? Is this God on some kind of power trip? God angry because somebody has the audacity or the courage to call him to account for the arbitrary use of his power? Is God the superpower and Job is just this independent poor nation who's daring to speak truth to power? Who's daring to demand accountability from power that's been used unjustly? I think Sinclair Ferguson hits the bullseye when he makes the following statement. Quote, what is God really like is the great question of the book of Job. You see, that's what we're wrestling over here. That's what's being revealed here. The answer to the question of what is God really like. And yet we cannot find the totality of the answer to that question, the entirety of the answer to that question in the book of Job alone. I mean, we will find next week as we study together at the end of the book that, that we'll see Job's restoration, which will certainly magnify and display the goodness of God, the justice of God. But you know as well as I do that stories don't always end that way. Somebody gets wiped out and they stay wiped out. People suffer and they don't rebound. They lose people and they never get them back. 
And so what are we to make of this? Are we, are we just left with this impression, this, this sense that Job actually got it, got it good because it turned around for him, but for us, we just, we just don't know? Or is there something else? Is there something that the book of Job points to that we're supposed to pay careful attention to? And of course, we know the answer to that is obviously yes, because all of the Old Testament exists to point forward to a New Testament, to a new covenant that was coming, to point forward to one who would resolve the problems of sin. Augustine used to say, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So what we have in Job is we have something concealed. There's part of the New Testament that is concealed in the book of Job. And we know that's true because James references in chapter 5 Job's name, and he interprets Job's as a, Job as a patient man. So the, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. So where do we find here something concealed about the New Testament, something concealed about the New Covenant, something concealed about the Savior himself? And I think that's the link between Job and the gospel. That's the link between Job and the cross, because God ultimately responded to the question of unfairness with a visit. And it wasn't simply a visit from, to Job, and it wasn't simply the visit from a whirlwind, but God brought an actual incarnation of himself, Emmanuel, God become man, and came to earth. Meaning that God did not exempt himself from tragedy. That God did not exempt himself from suffering. That God did not exempt himself from betrayal. It's not like Jesus came and because he was Jesus, because he was perfect, he was given immunity because that's what people in that class get. They get immunity. They get protected. They always get a way out of injustice. No. On the contrary, Jesus became the only innocent person who ever lived on earth, the one who lived the perfect life, conforming to God's law in all ways and at all times. He lived the perfect life, and yet, as the perfect being who never deserved to die, who never deserved to suffer, who never deserved anything in this great demolition of justice, he suffered the death of the worst criminal in the history of mankind. He suffered the death of a criminal. He suffered the penalty of being the very thing that he never was. He suffered the penalty of a betrayer and a traitor and a liar and a murderer and a mocker. And in doing so, he supplied the answer to the nagging questions that we can have about the goodness of God. No, God did not exempt himself. God did not allow injustice to simply be an experience for human beings and not from him. But he inflicted it upon himself. In fact, he inflicted the worst injustice in the history of mankind upon himself. And yet from that injustice came the salvation that we sang about and worshipped over this morning. And it doesn't make sense. Suffering rarely makes sense. But we have to remember that we have been called to follow a suffering Savior. In fact, he was the one that died on the cross and launched this whole thing through what appeared to be the most irrelevant sacrifice that ever took place and the greatest injustice that ever took place. I mean, just imagine for a second that you were standing there. Imagine for a second that you had walked 
with him, that you had seen his power to heal, that you had heard his words of wisdom, that they had affected you and transformed you, and you walked with him, and you were part of it. In fact, you observed the quality of his godliness, and you were thrilled to follow him, and you observed how people flocked to him, and how he spoke these words of wisdom, and how people were unlocked, and demons were cast out. He was this unparalleled human being in the history of man, and now you're standing there seeing the one who was like that, so lovely, so godly, so beautiful, so unique in the history of all humanity, you're watching him die in a mass of bloody flesh. And you're listening carefully because all around you, you hear people whispering. And what they're whispering is just, how could God let this happen? If he's really just How could this one man, this prophet of God, this man who never sinned, we never saw him sin, how could this ever happen? Is this how God deals with the godly? Is this how God defines justice? Is this how God really loves us? Look what he did to his greatest prophet. Look what he did to the man who called himself God. How could good ever come from this? Justice means nothing to God. But wait, hold on, because in a short time, maybe just a few days, that spectacle of suffering is going to say something completely different. It's going to become the greatest thing that God ever did. It's going to display his incomprehensible love for us. Do you get it? At at the cross, his perfect justice and his perfect mercy existed side by side, so that we could receive the salvation of God. It broke open the grace of God. See, the, the point is that if you're, if you're standing there before the cross and you're looking at the suffering Savior, you're seeing what appears to be the greatest injustice in the history of the world. But if you're in the upper room a few days after he resurrected from the dead and you're receiving the Holy Spirit, it's the greatest blessing that God could ever give. I mean... The whole thing is just mind-numbing. The whole thing is just mind-bending. I was talking about Augustine earlier. There's a story of Augustine walking along the beach, and he's he's pondering the Trinity. You know, three three persons, one God. And this is just confounding him. And he, he comes upon this small boy, and the boy has a seashell, and he's running down to the ocean. He's putting water in the seashell, and then running up, and he's putting it in a hole. And uh, Augustine stops and he says, what are you doing, my little man? And, and, and the boy said to him, I'm going to pour the whole sea into this hole here. And Augustine reported the following. He, he thought this. He thought, ah, that's what I'm attempting to do. Standing at the ocean of infinity, I have attempted to grasp it with my finite mind. You know the challenge of some of the ways that you're suffering right now is that it doesn't exist for this world. It exists for the next world. It exists for infinity. And we don't get answers because the answer comes then because the the entire intention of it is not that we would reap something from it here and now. But sometimes it exists because there are treasures beyond the grave. And here's the thing. Job comes to terms with that which is why his story ends 
with his repentance and his restoration and his trust in God restored all before, any cha- all before he was healed, all before his circumstances were changed, all before his wealth is restored because Job's lesson became the same as ours as well. It was basically, Lord, even if nothing changes, even if the healing doesn't come, even if the wealth is not restored, even if we never go back to relating the way we did, I trust you. You are enough. You're enough. I want to tell you how incredibly meaningful this section of Scripture has been to me over the past three years. Many of you know of the difficulties that we've had and the challenges for our family that necessitated our departure from our church and the family of churches that we love and were a part of for over three decades to relocate to Tallahassee. And I wish I could tell you that I always responded the way Job did in chapter 1. Well, the Lord gave and the Lord taketh away and blessed be the name of the Lord. But I did not. There were times where I saw God as unjust. In fact, it, it kind of played out in my mind. I, I, I remember thinking, well, you know, wait a minute. You know, he created this entire religious system so that he received credit for all the good things that happened, and we receive blame for the, God, for the bad things that happened. It's a God-exonerating belief system. That's what I thought. He causes all things to work together for good, but if they turn out bad, it somehow maps onto my deficiencies. The insufficiency of my response, my faith, my application, my disobedience, something that I'm not doing that's then at stake when things don't go the way they're supposed to go. And I remember despairing as I confronted what I thought to be a kind of catch-22, man's catch-22. Oh, I get it, Lord, I get it. If my marriage goes well, God gets the glory. If it doesn't, I get the blame. If my family moves towards God, it's his activity. If they don't, then it's my fault. If I finish well, God gets the glory by giving me the power to endure. If I don't, well, then I'm culpable and I stand in judgment. And I remember going to a friend with that and saying, what should I do with this? And he said, take that and say it to God. Say it to God. And so I did. I I lamented everything I thought to God. I did it with tears. I did it with groanings. See, lamenting doesn't mean that you lack faith. Lamenting means that you're in touch with reality. Lamenting means that you feel brokenness. You feel loss. And rather than just running around being angry about it, you're taking that to God and expressing it to God. It doesn't make you sinful. It makes you human. In the Psalms, prayers are a lot more than just claiming the promises of God. Sometimes in the Psalms, you encounter this raw honesty because you're hearing somebody pray out of what they feel, and they're taking it to their Father in heaven. And it was in this passage of Scripture, chapter 38 through 42 of Job, that my hope was rekindled, that my faith was renewed in some way. And it wasn't because I had the answers but it was because I remembered the one 
who called me. I remembered the one and returned to the one who loved me. I, I fled back into the arms of the one who died for me. And I returned to a conviction. It was a conviction that I always believed. It was a conviction that I, I, I preached for many years. But I now believed it in a whole new way. And it wasn't comprehensive and it certainly wasn't complex. It simply went like this. Jesus is enough. That was, that was it. Jesus is enough. In other words, it's enough to have Jesus, but not answers. It's enough. It's enough to have Jesus, but not fruit. It's enough. It's enough to have Jesus, but not laughter. It's enough to have Jesus and, and no whirlwind standing in front of you, answering the questions you have, or giving you something that there's the existence of God in this problem. It, even when that's not there, it's enough because He is enough. And you know what? I'm discovering that there's a certain incontrovertible freedom from realizing that even in a fallen world, even in a fallen world with unresolved problems, even in a fallen world with unresolved problems and inscrutable pain and unanswered questions, Jesus is enough. And my prayer for each one of us today, this afternoon, is that he meets us in our brokenness with the hope from knowing that though you leave here and you return to the same circumstances that were there prior to this meeting, because they're going to greet you as soon as you go out, even though you leave here and you go to the same circumstances or the same kind of suffering that you were experiencing this morning, that Jesus is enough. It's the lesson that Job learned it may likely be the lesson that God wants us to learn as well.